Welcome to Takeaway Science, another in the series of short podcasts produced by BLAST at the Open University. As usual, we've got three short sequences for you. Later on, BLAST project manager Emily Younell talks about science education and outreach with Tom Lane, a visiting professor at the Open University who's also the rather gloriously titled Head of Global Outreach at the Dow Corning Corporation in the States and President-elect of the American Chemical Society. And before that, we chat with OU science graduate Hazel Carr about what it's like studying for an Open University science degree. But first, we pick up where we left off in an earlier Takeaway Science podcast, in which Wes Fraser, a postgraduate research student from the Open University's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, talked to OU oceanographer and senior lecturer in environmental science, Dr Mark Brandon, about the research that he, that's Mark, is doing on the melting ice sheets in the Antarctic. Let's see where they've got to. Over to you, Wes. Are you of the opinion that uh, melting of ice caps is actually quite a serious issue? Is it it as serious as the mainstream press would suggest? It's a f- it's a good question. It's a f- it's a it's quite a difficult one to answer, and it's quite difficult to answer for two reasons. The first reason is it most of the climate change things are all about a question of time scale, really. And you know, if if the if the time that things are changing is slow, then human society can respond. When things respond, when things change quickly, that's a problem, because you can't respond very quickly to them. Um, so in the case of the ice shelves in Antarctica. Every few years, there's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they publish predictions for what sea level rise will be with global warming that we know is going on on Earth. Now, in 1990, 2001, actually, was the, the, the last report before the one now. In 2001, the estimates for sea level rise over the next 100 years were quite high. But the, the report that was published in 2007, last year, actually, whilst I was at the Wilkins Ice Shelf, the estimates for sea level rise actually would, were lower, which was quite a surprise. And then lots of newspapers published all these stories saying, well, there's no problem with sea level. You know, it's not going to be as bad as we thought. But the 2007 version doesn't include any of the ice from Antarctica and Greenland because we just don't understand enough about how they're melting at the moment. So it's one of those uh, big issues that it, it could be a huge issue it will, you know, it could be an issue perhaps in the next 50 to 100 years, but we don't understand enough about it to put it into the reports that go to the government about how to act. So what we're trying to understand right at this moment is how quickly they may collapse. What we're seeing with the Wilkins, for example, is they melt quite slowly for a while, and then they melt quite slowly, and then they melt quite slowly, and then they melt quite slowly, and then, bang, they go very quickly, which is sort of what we think is happening now. And so you said earlier that you've been going to Antarctica for over a decade now, which is quite a long time. Have you noticed any changes since you, whilst you've been actually there? Have you noticed any changes in that time? Um, it's, it, 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 people will tell you it's always difficult to, um, to say that the changes you've seen over a relatively short period, like 10 years or 15 years, are due to climate change. But the short answer is I have seen huge changes and a simple example is uh, a base that I worked a lot at in Antarctica is called Rothera. And if you sit in the Rothera canteen, you, you overlook this thing behind the runway, which is called the ski ramp. 
and people used to go up the ski ramp and ski down it. And in the last perhaps eight years, it's melted so much that it's now, you know, there is no snow on it. It's completely bare ice and it's actually too dangerous to ski now. You actually have to walk up it and then go, you know, get on a skidoo and go and ski somewhere else. So a simple, you know, the short, simple answer is yes, huge changes in some parts of Antarctica. And it's really obvious. I suppose it really brings it home, just how quickly things do change. It does. And, the, you know, where I where I sit on the, the Antarctica melting or climate change thing is, is there's no debate. It, you know, we know certain areas of Antarctica are melting you know, very quickly and it's very changing. Problem is with global warming and climate science, I guess, uh, you might agree here, is um, people talk about it as if it's a science issue, but people don't treat it as a science issue, because if they did, the facts are clear. They treat it as something completely else and you know, completely different, and blame you know, the government as some excuse an, for raising taxes or stuff, which is got nothing to do with There's society involved as well, yeah. Absolutely. It's a, it's a political area of science at mm. the moment. All we're trying to do is understand the planet. What do you think the next big thing easy for the scientists to, to head for well the next big the next big thing that I reckon we'll figure out in Antarctica over the next 10 to 15 years um, is definitely going to be this this how what is this the short question is that we're working on is what is going to be the contribution of Antarctica melting to sea level rise and I think in the next 10, ten years we'll make huge inroads on that because the amount of data we're collecting now in areas we've never been able to go to before you know, we'll do really well on that. The other really interesting thing that's going on in Antarctica at the moment is uh, Lake Vostok. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. So the, is that the under ice lake? Yeah, I mentioned before that Antarctica is about three and a half to four kilometres thick ice. The freezing point of water is really complicated, and if you actually put it under lots of pressure, it melts. So underneath Antarctica, underneath this ice, it turns out there are about one to two hundred lakes, between one and two hundred lakes underneath Antarctic ice. Really, that's, that's quite a surprise. It's a huge surprise. Now, Lake Vostok is the one everyone's heard of because that's the really big one. But it turns out, you know, in, they are all over Antarctica. And hopefully, hopefully in the next two or three years, a team left, led by Edinburgh University are going to drill into one of these lakes using some very special equipment and hopefully find out, you know, for, you know answer some questions about... You know, how long has the lake been there? Is there any you know, life forms in, underneath the ice that we don't know anything about whatsoever? And more importantly, uh, is there any uh, you know, source of water underneath these lakes that can actually get into the oceans and upset the global ocean circulation? So I would say Antarctic lakes would be one of them. And the other question would be we're going to learn a lot more about how Antarctica is melting. Open University oceanographer Dr Mark Brandon talking there with OU postgrad student Wes Fraser. You might like to know that the OU offers a third level course called, what else? Oceanography, in which students study some of the latest areas of interest in the subject. Topics such as underwater volcanoes, the greenhouse effect, eddy systems in the ocean, the El Nino phenomenon and its link to droughts and floods, and the global view of ocean properties that satellite technology can provide, are all explored to some depth. Yeah, I had to get that one in. The course takes the view that oceanography is a whole Earth science. The oceans, after all, interact continuously with the solid Earth and the atmosphere, and they're the setting for much of the planet's biological production. 
The earth sciences, physics, chemistry and biology are all prominent in the course because their interrelationship in the marine environment is the essence of oceanography. As usual, if you want to find out more about this or any other Open University Science course, log on to WW3, that's the numeral 3, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study, click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. You know, in its 40-year existence, the Open University has had well over 2 million students take its courses. And before their studies with the OU, many of them had no previous academic qualifications whatsoever. They ended up with an Open University degree, though. Many students new to the OU worry about what will be expected of them as a student. What's it like to study for an OU science degree, for instance? Well, BLAST project manager Emily Younell found out when she talked with Hazel Carr, who's now working for the university as a course manager in the Department of Chemistry and Analytical Sciences. Hazel recently completed an Open University degree in Molecular Sciences. Let's hear what she has to say. Here's Emily. Hazel, why did you decide to take up an OU degree? Um, well, I'd left school quite early, I suppose, just after my GCSEs, um, and I'd always wanted to study, um, but I didn't think it would ever be possible for me to study for a degree because um, of the money and things like that. Um, so this was ideal um, to fit it around my life, really. And why did you choose to do a degree in molecular sciences or chemistry? Um, well, I started off with the um, level one science course, and, that, and that's the only thing that I really planned to do at the beginning. Um, but it was a really good introduction to studying, and it sort of gave a broad range of biology, chemistry and physics. Um, and from that, I just had an interest in chemistry, really, so I started to pick more and more chemistry courses. When you started your degree... Um, you're a stay-at-home mum, but then you got a job, I understand, as a technician, a chemistry technician at a school, and you have three children. How did you fit all of those things into your life? Um, well, I, I mean, I did do the work plans that um, comes with this, the studying the courses. Um, so I just I planned to study in the evening, sort of a couple of hours each evening, um, and then quite a lot of hours over the weekend. I also did about an hour studying before work as well, which I found really useful. Um, but I didn't always keep up with it, and I had to catch up. But um, my job was term time, so it gave me um, holidays to to catch up in the daytime as well. But oh, it's very impressive. Um, and how long did it take you to to do the course? Um, I took six years. I did about. Um, 60 points each year. So, right. Hmm. And that's pretty standard, isn't it? Most yes, people do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What would you say was the best thing about studying with the OU? Um, I think that stu fitting it around your life, that, that is the best thing, really, that you can just carry on living and doing everything else, but mm. it, it fits, fits in as well. What was the worst thing about studying with the OU? Um, well, the worst thing for me, and somebody had warned me about it, was studying through the summer, which is quite hard when it's sunny outside and you've got TMAs coming up. Um, but I had a swingy seat in the garden and I had all my books around me, so I used to sit in the garden and, and study wow. like that. Yeah. But that was, that was the worst thing, but I had been warned about it. <laughs> <laughs>
What courses did you enjoy the most? Um, well, I really liked the residential schools, which were associated with, well, say, like the molecular science um, one, because it gives you such a good opportunity to be in the labs and to meet other students to realize, and to realise that you're not the only person studying. It, that, that was really good mm-hmm. to go on the residential school. So it gives you that face-to-face contact? I yes, guess. yeah, that's right. What advice would you give to other people who are studying an OU course? Just to keep going, really, and to think about when you walk across the stage to get your degree. (laughs) Emily Unell talking there with Hazel Carr about the best and worst aspects of studying science with the OU. You know, one of the OU's most popular chemistry courses is The Molecular World, a course that recognises the enormous importance of chemistry in everyday life. After all, almost everything we are, see, make and eat is composed of molecules. As a second-level course, the molecular world offers a wide-ranging introduction to chemistry and its applications, and it integrates the three main branches of the subject, organic, inorganic and physical. The course covers the reactions of metals, the solid state, the shapes of molecules, thermodynamics and kinetics, the synthesis of organic compounds, structure determination by spectroscopic methods, bonding theory, periodic trends and non-metals. And a wide range of multimedia materials is used throughout the course to provide interactive teaching of key concepts. There are also nine associated case studies that look at topics of current interest. These include polymers, batteries, catalysis, drug design, liquid crystals and forensic science. To find out more about this or any other Open University Science course, log on to www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. Click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. And so to the final sequence of this Takeaway Science podcast, in which we feature Blast Project Manager Emily Younell, again, this time in conversation with Tom Lane, a visiting chemistry professor at the Open University and president-elect of the American Chemical Society. Emily and Tom talk about science education and outreach, And the sequence begins with Tom explaining how he became Head of Global Outreach at the Dow Corning Corporation in the States. Our CEO, Dr Stephanie Byrne, asked me if I would help her better understand how Dow Corning might be able to positively impact math science education. And so for the last year or so, I've been been looking at the data and questioning the assumptions and, and trying to get a better understanding of how the company might help. We've come to the conclusion that we, we don't want to be like everyone else. Everyone seems to know what's wrong with the education system and and they know how to fix it. And so most of the solutions that are being offered today are prescriptive. We've elected to to treat students and teachers and even parents as customers and really understand what their needs are. Not assume that we know, but to understand what their needs are today, what their limitations of their operating environment may be, so that we could work together to provide solutions that would in fact have impact and benefit and and hopefully measurable outcomes for our children. And so the approach that we've taken, we've started with teachers, and I've been able to chat with about a thousand teachers from around the world to, to ask them what do they really need 
to make a difference. And it's, it's been an astounding conversation because the answers are the same around the world. And it doesn't matter if you're in an inner city school with high poverty or if you're in a rural area. The needs of teachers seem to be universal. And simply put, the five kind of large categories of needs that teachers talk about are things like networks. Teachers teach in isolation. Teachers tell me that they need content in context. The state or government mandates the content that teachers must deliver. But everyone assumes that teachers can put that content into a context that every child will understand. And I think it's really unreasonable. Teachers tell me they need support from, from faculty, from administration, from other teachers, from parents, from anyone and everyone. They often feel very isolated. And even if they have great ideas on how they can change the system, they need to feel that if they take the attempt, that administration will support them, that, that parents will support them. Because very often, and especially true in the U.S., teachers are graded based on standardized test scores that their children must take. And if they introduce a new teaching methodology and those test scores slip, they're held accountable. I was quite astounded the first time teachers told me they need courage. And, and sometimes that courage is just the courage to teach a subject area. Sometimes it's the courage of, of teaching something that they don't feel completely comfortable with. And, and as you kind of think about those times in your life when you've needed courage, I know I, I look for a friend. And, and so Dow Corning is looking at ways where perhaps we can be mentors and, and be the friends that, that can help those teachers find the courage to do what they need to do to help our children. And finally, teachers tell me they need time. But if content delivery is a process, then there ought to be ways to optimize that process and find some time. And we've run a number of, of interesting little experiments that say that, that, in fact, we can do this. We can begin to, to eke out time so that teachers can do more things. Perhaps if we use technology in a creative way that... Uh, that has motion and color and sound and can really come at them from a couple of different ways, that they're going to accept that information more quickly and, again, perhaps find some more time for the teacher. Slightly tricky question. Why do you think that institutions such as you know, Open University or any university should get involved with outreach? Because if we're not reaching out directly to our consumers. It is a bit of a tricky question. And... It's one that I would answer this way. You know, if universities, whether it be the Open University or, or any institute of higher learning, are really to, to maintain their expertise, their craft, their, their knowledge, they must take the time to go back and talk to their customers, the people who they will be serving. And so I think if for no other reason universities should begin to engage in, in public outreach just to get a better sense of who their customers are and, and who, in fact, are going to be using the students they train. So not just talking to students and parents, but also to businesses. Um, university trains students to become part of our society. And for many, that means going into the business sector and, and doing a job of some sort. 
and the requirements for jobs today have changed a great deal. So no longer is it simply being competent. Today, competency is just the price of admission. It allows you to enter the door. But there are skills that many have considered to be softer, skills like you know, communications and, and to be passionate and, and to have the ability to, to collaborate and are now skills that employers are looking for. And if, if universities, the trainers of this workforce, aren't out there in the community understanding what the needs are, then chances are they're not going to be as effective as they might be. Emily Younell and chemist Tom Lane there. Well, if it's postgraduate study you're interested in, you might like to know that there's an OU Master's course called Contemporary Issues in Science Learning, a course that starts from the premise that science is learned in a variety of educational settings. Students taking contemporary issues in science learning examine how the development of science education reflects current theories of learning, and they explore key issues such as what purposes teaching and learning science serve and how context influences learning. As well as investigating how science education research is carried out, students on the course look at the resources that are used to support science learners, particularly information and communications technology, ICT. As a master's level science course, contemporary issues in science learning will benefit those engaged in teaching science at any level, as well as science graduates who seek a better understanding of contemporary science education. If you want to find out more about this or any other Open University Science course, log on to www3, that's the numeral 3, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. Click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. Well, that's the end of another Takeaway Science podcast brought to you by BLAST at The Open University. For other podcasts in this series, revisit the Open University Science faculty website at open.ac.uk forward slash science. And if you want to find out more about some of the science outreach work carried out by the OU, visit the BLAST web pages at blast.open.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from me, Mike Bullivant. So, adios, amigos. Mm-hmm.